Welcome to impactboom.org. We search the globe to find the people, stories, ideas, and inspiration to help you create maximum positive impact. Each week, Impact Boom brings you thought-provoking interviews with world-leading practitioners passionate about creating positive social change. These designers, social entrepreneurs, educators, innovators, thinkers, and doers share their projects, initiatives, thoughts, and insights on creating a better world. You can find all the stories, links, and other great content at impactboom.org. Follow us on Facebook or Twitter for the latest updates, or subscribe to the newsletter or on iTunes. Thanks for listening to episode 132 of Impact Boom. My name's Tom Allen, and I'm passionate about bringing you the latest interviews and insights to help you create positive social impact. Today, we're speaking with Matthew Taylor. Matthew is a collaborative and compassionate leader and advocate who works across sectors and disciplines to bridge the divide between policy and practice and drive social innovation and entrepreneurship. He's committed to individual and collective action to create a more just, inclusive, and sustainable world. Matthew is a policy manager at the Department of Treasury and Finance. In 2018, his primary responsibility was implementing Victoria's Social Procurement Framework, which puts social and sustainable outcomes at the center of government procurement activity. He's also the co-founder and managing director of Met Designs, a design collective that creates beautiful quality products inspired by reading and ideas. As a not-for-profit social enterprise, Met's profits support literacy programs that empower kids to reach their full potential and write their own story. In addition to social innovation and entrepreneurship, Matthew is also passionate about education, arts and culture, community building and civic participation. As a member of the Global Shapers community, Matthew aims to empower young people to play a more active role in solution building and policy making to address local, regional and global challenges. So in today's podcast, we'll discuss Matthew's views on the current state of social enterprise sector in Australia. We'll get Matthew's insights and perspective on social innovation opportunities, and we'll hear what Matthew believes can be done by governments to create stronger opportunities for positive social change. So, Matthew, thank you very much for joining us. Pleasure. Thank you for having me. It's a great way to start the new year. It certainly is. So to kick things off, Matthew, could you please share a little bit about your background and what led you to working in government and the social enterprise sector? Sure. So last year, my career path shifted suddenly and uh, significantly. I was working on the Banking Royal Commission as a commercial lawyer and also moonlighting in the social enterprise and not-for-profit sectors uh, when I decided to join the Victorian government as a policy advisor to help um, develop and implement their social procurement framework. So it was a really huge turning point for me and probably one that might be better described as a hard pivot or a, or a handbrake turn. So over the past year, um, I've found myself reflecting on your question, primarily because people seem more interested in my answer than ever before. I've also tried to carve out time to take stock, something which takes more and more effort and restraint in this busy world of ours. And on reflection, one thing I've observed is that we play out our lives like the reader of a good crime novel. We get to the final chapter and we witness the big reveal We discover who's done it and experience that kind of glorious sense of resolution and relief from the suspense. Mm. And suddenly you look back at all the preceding chapters and you notice all of those clues that the writer carefully littered throughout the chapters. Mm. The clues were there all along in black and white. Um, You experienced them only moments, moments before, but now the evidence is obvious and unignorably so. 
so I guess what have I started to recognize about my personal journey in, in retrospect about this turning point? Um, well, I began my professional career as a commercial lawyer, specializing in regulatory investigations and enforcement proceedings, uh, anti-competitive conduct, consumer protection, and regulated industries like electricity and gas. And over time, I became increasingly aware that all of those areas of law had really strong foundations in public policy, and in particular, economic policy and the functioning and regulation of markets. And I guess having studied economics, finance and law during my uni days, um, this should have been pretty obvious to me much earlier in my career. Mm. Um, and basically, this realization kind of uh, led me to start entertaining the possibility of working in public policy or politics even, um, should an inspirational opportunity present itself. But I guess given um, the recent political climate in Australia, I didn't really have high hopes um, that such an opportunity would arise. And at the beginning of my legal career, I was actually exposed to alternative business models and social entrepreneurship. Uh, when one of the corporate partners um, was providing pro bono advice to restructure a well-known social enterprise. I also studied economics and finance when Lehman Brothers collapsed, which marked the beginning of the global financial crisis. Mm. And that caused a lot of soul searching on my part. And I even ended up taking time off uh, commerce um, to really think about whether it's something I wanted to continue with. And I guess that given my general lack of comfort with conventional economic wisdom, when I kind of was exposed to these alternative business models, uh, I really gravitated towards them um, and these different ways of thinking about business and the way that the economy um, can and should work. And then a couple of years later, I basically came off the back of a really significant trial at work and I became really sick. And when I recovered from that bout of sickness, I became sick again and again, and it was really happening far too often. Mm. And I pushed through many months of symptoms at work and finally accepted the advice of my doctor to take extended leave and let my immune system recover. And it was a really, I guess, I can't describe it any other way than it was a really stark realization that having buried myself in my work, um, I'd really failed to realize that among other things, I'd even gone through a bout of glandular fever. So yeah. that, was, that was a really low point in my life. And mm. I guess whilst I was on leave, I spent a lot of time immersed in the passions that had really taken a back seat during my legal career, so mainly reading, writing, and art. And one day, I was sitting in my uh, favorite cafe in Melbourne and amply caffeinated, and I was reading through Kafka's Metamorphosis. And it probably wasn't the healthiest thing to be reading whilst on sick leave, <laughs> but I guess out of nowhere, I came up with a design concept inspired by classic literature. And that led to the start of my business. And it was really my passion for reading and the transformative power of education that transformed that kind of design concept and idea for a business yeah. um, into a social enterprise concept that would be an opportunity to dedicate the profits of the business to ensuring that all kids grow up with the ability to read and write. Mm. So at the time, creating designs inspired by reading ideas for people who love to read and write and then using those profits to help others learn to read and write seemed like a perfect business um, idea and a perfect reason to start one. So a few friends of mine came together to move the project forward, and we ultimately raised over $13,000 through a crowdfunding campaign uh, on Possible. So that's really how I entered the social enterprise sector, and that continued on 
uh, I guess, in, increasing involvement in the sector over a number of years while I was practicing law. And it was through my involvement in the social enterprise sector that I came across the fascinating concept of social procurement. In 2017, I was fortunate um, to receive bursary funding to attend the Social Enterprise World Forum in Christchurch in New Zealand. Oh, wow. And one of the central topics of that conference was social procurement and the opportunities it would provide for the social enterprise sector. And at that time, there was a lot of interest in Victorian government um, policy and in particular, its social enterprise strategy, which really was um, an Australian first. Mm. And I guess buried in the detail of that strategy, there was a policy commitment to develop a social procurement framework. And people were talking about this at the conference, but it really wasn't clear whether the framework would be limited to supporting the social enterprise sector. So when I got home to Melbourne, I continued to research social procurement policy and practice. And a few months into the Banking Royal Commission, I became aware that the Victorian government was developing and implementing an ambitious social procurement framework. So in quite roundabout circumstances, I'd found that inspirational opportunity to work in public policy, and I went for it. So a month later, I was no longer actively practicing law. What a big change to your career, but it sounds like it's just been a, a journey that has, has naturally taken that path, right? Exactly. And I guess I come back to um, a quote from Steve Jobs that you can't connect the dots looking forward. You can only mm. do so looking backwards. And I guess, you know, my passion for reading and philosophy and ideas my development of the social enterprise, my legal experience, which kind of lends itself and is really transferable to public policy, yeah. and then some you know, really great and I guess lucky circumstances to be exposed to particular ideas at the right time, and then, then kind of pulled me towards um, the public policy path. So I guess, yeah, you can only really realize these things in retrospect, but that's kind of how things came together. Absolutely. So you mentioned just now the, the Victorian government's launch of Australia's first whole of government commitment to social and sustainable procurement. So having worked in that space for a little while now, Matthew, what do you believe are the key steps then that other regional governments need to take to help foster and support this innovative social sector? There's uh, quite, a, quite a few steps that it can be taken. I guess the first step is to understand the scope of the opportunity. I think the initial observation I'd make is that social and sustainable procurement, I guess whatever it's called, can do more than support an innovative social economy or social sector. Mm. Um, in, Australia, in Australia alone, social procurement has been described as a, a $600 billion social change opportunity. So the first and most important step for other regional governments is really awareness about the scope of this opportunity. They need to understand what social procurement is and how they can take advantage of the opportunity. So I guess if you're listening and aren't too familiar with what social procurement is, it's when organisations use their buying power to generate social value above and beyond the value of the goods and services that are being procured. So beyond minimising adverse impacts of our supply chains on people and planet, um, social procurement is really the intentional and strategic use of procurement processes to deliver positive outcomes and unlock value in supply chains. Mm. In other words, by making small changes to the way that we approach procurement, we can really make a big difference in people's lives. Public and private sector organisations have the power to make these changes, primarily because they have significant buying power. And that's where this $600 billion figure enters centre stage. Totally. In the public sector, for example, um, approximately 30% of all the revenue 
that um, governments earn is spent through government supply chains. So last year in Victoria alone, government procurement activities totaled around $27 billion on goods, services and construction. It's a really momentous uh, figure. Mm. And that represents everything from really small routine purchases of catering for external functions um, to the major infrastructure projects that dominate the headlines, such as Melbourne Metro Tunnel. And then in the private sector, spending through the supply chains is even more prominent. Um, the International Organization for Standardization, for example, estimates that private sector organizations typically spend more than half of their entire revenue through their supply chains. So the key takeaway here is that the public and private sectors are really major drivers in our economy. And with the amount of money actually being spent through their supply chains, there can't really be fairness, inclusivity or sustainability in our economy and our society without these very organizations ensuring that fairness and inclusivity and sustainability is achieved through their supply chains. So, so what, what advice then would you give to these corporate or government buyers to incorporate social enterprises into their supply chains? So I guess understand the purposes of social procurement is a really good starting point. Social procurement is really not a new concept. Yeah. Um, there's a growing body of evidence dating back decades or even hundreds of years. There's also a growing national, international focus on the strategic use of procurement functions to deliver social, environmental and economic outcomes. So for governments, um, understanding why you would engage in this, in, in this um, basically policy development process there's increasing recognition that it's a really important tool for governments to leverage, to leverage their purchasing power and increase the value of taxpayer dollars. This allows them to achieve broader public policy objectives, to increase opportunities and expand markets for social benefit suppliers, such mm -hmm. as social enterprises, uh, and also influence mainstream suppliers to prioritise social value creation. And then above and beyond that, there's also diversity in supply chains that help drive competition, promote innovation, and also provide all suppliers with a full and fair opportunity to compete. Yeah. And then I guess, on the other hand, there's also um, reasons why the private sector is engaging in this conduct and helping, um, I guess, understanding why they're interested in social procurement will really help this along. And this, this comes down to improving brand reputation and controlling supply chain risks, um, developing stronger, more reliable and longer lasting supplier relationships, um, developing more innovative and sustainable products that result in increased sales, and even improving rankings in CSR and green financial indices and databases and delivering cost savings. So really, there are a host of reasons to engage in social procurement for both public and private sector organizations. Mm. And understanding exactly what those drivers are is, is the perfect starting point. And I guess from that position of understanding, then organizations um, need to understand what social value means in their circumstances. And this is something that can mean very different things depending on the organization. Um, in the Victorian government context, it means achieving uh, one of 10 objectives um, in, that are actually set out in the social procurement framework. And these range from promoting gender equality to employing Aboriginal Victorian people, um, Victorians with disability, purchasing from social enterprises, uh, all the way through to reducing carbon emissions. And once you kind of understand those core elements what you're actually trying to achieve through social procurement, then I, I think it really comes down to developing policy and really committing to implementation. 
Mm. So are there any countries that you believe that are really leading the charge when it comes to social procurement and these sort of uh, policies? And if you think that there are any great countries out there doing this, what are they doing that you think Australia or other countries around the world could adopt? I think what's really amazing, actually, having just been to um, Scotland for the Social Enterprise uh, World Forum in Edinburgh, is I discovered that actually Australia, and in particular Victoria, is is a world leader in terms of social procurement policy and mm. practice. And this really has been through the development of Australia's first social procurement framework. Yeah. But what I, what I discovered uh, in Scotland was that our framework in Victoria has several unique features that really distinguish it from all other policies around the world. Um, firstly, it applies to all Victorian government departments and agencies, and that's almost 300 government entities. Mm-hmm. So there's, there's really this, this kind of idea that it has to be right across the entirety of government procurement. Secondly, it applies to the procurement of all good services and construction. So there's no exceptions or focus on particular types of procurement. It's really looking at opportunities right across the spectrum. And to achieve this, the framework sets mandatory requirements and minimum expectations um, and adopts a scalable approach that's really based on the value of individual procurement activities. So essentially, the more you spend, the greater the expectation to deliver social and environmental outcomes. The third feature, which is really important, is that it adopts a flexible rather than a prescriptive approach to social procurement, and that empowers government buyers to set proportionate and achievable requirements to deliver those outcomes with a view to maximizing social value and achieving optimal value for money outcomes. I think the thing that I'm most impressed about and is really lacking in policy developments around the world in relation to social procurement is that most policies adopt just one approach to social procurement. And that's what we describe as the direct approach, where government purchases from social benefit suppliers, such Mm. as indigenous businesses or social enterprises. Really what the Victorian framework does is it extends that and says social procurement, it really should recognize that all suppliers, whether they're social benefit suppliers or mainstream suppliers, can help deliver these really important outcomes for society. So we also promote the indirect approach to social procurement, and that's where government purchases from a mainstream supplier in the private sector and then uses the tender process and contract terms to require those suppliers to deliver social and sustainable outcomes. Mm. So it might be, you know, really simply, a private sector supplier agrees to adopt a family violence leave policy to tackle gender inequality and family violence, or it might be adopting targets to employ people with disability um, or Aboriginal people. So there's many different ways that you can work with private sector organisations. And really, I think Victoria is one of the only places in the world that actually recognises this. The one last thing I'd say is that policies around the world really lack uh, implementation teeth and they don't um, take accountability seriously. If governments are very serious about actually making sure that opportunities for social procurement are identified and pursued across the entirety of government. This is really a very large um, and long-term change management process. Mm. And basically, it requires all of the accountability and implementation work that you would expect from a change management process. 
So you need kind of mandatory requirements to actually engage in social procurement. You need to set minimum expectations. You need to develop the right guidance materials and tools and templates to help government buyers do this work. You need to engage the supplier side of the market to make sure that they can actually deliver on these outcomes. And then you need to actually develop a personal accountability mechanisms. And, you know, for example, in Victoria, we have a whole measurement and reporting uh, framework being developed to ensure that we're actually tracking our progress and able to deliver and increase the sophistication of our, um, our social procurement activities over time. There's some great insights there, Matthew, and I think there's a lot lot to learn from what the Victorian government has, has implemented there. So just to, to quickly step back, I'm curious to hear a little bit more about Met Designs, uh, your social enterprise, and I certainly know that you've got a crowdfunding coming up as well. So tell us a little bit more about what you're doing there. So Met stands for metamorphosis, uh, goes back to that Kafka book I was reading. And that's a single word that really goes to the heart of who we are as a business and why we exist. So Met is a design collective, uh, as you said, that creates beautiful quality products inspired by reading and ideas. We collaborate with emerging artists that embody a purposeful and creative approach to materials and making. And each of our designs is an expression of our core values, which are beauty, play and growth. In other words, we take inspiration from books, quotes, and big ideas and transform them using art and design into products that tell a really powerful story. And those products include T-shirts, tote bags, jewelry, um, art prints, and stationary products. So our profits support literacy programs that empower kids to reach their full potential and write their own story by providing foundational language and literacy skills, which are essential for success in education and in life. Our mission as a business is to change the narrative on a disadvantage today to create a prosperous tomorrow. And I know that your listeners are particularly interested in impact. So I guess I'll elaborate a little bit on um, how we actually use our profits to transform lives through education. From the beginning, we partnered with the Australian Literacy and Numeracy Foundation, an organization that's dedicated to raising language, literacy, and numeracy standards across Australia. And Met's only been trading for a short time, but after our first year, we were able to make our first contribution to the ALNF's Early Language and Literacy Program. And that innovative program is run in remote Indigenous communities, and it equips educators, parents, and community members with the knowledge and tools required to work with their own children Uh, to develop foundational language and literacy skills. Hmm. So as our business grows, our profits will provide the ALNF um, and potentially other organisations as well working in the literacy space with an independent, sustainable and growing source of funding to do what they do best. I guess what's really interesting is the work that we're doing right now and the project that we'll be launching through the crowdfunding campaign in January, and that's We've basically been collaborating with another social enterprise in Australia, Words With Heart, to produce um, a collection of premium, sustainable stationary products. And what's really amazing about this project is that by working together, uh, well, two social enterprises working together, we've managed to create A5 notebooks that do more for people and planet than existing products on the market. So what I would like to, I guess, say is that we have reimagined what's actually possible with producing a notebook. Mm. And that's a really big claim, but I guess it's 
really interesting when you look at each of the features that we're focused on the product and how we've aimed to not only deliver something that's beautiful and high quality, but also go further in terms of um, positive outcomes for people and also the environment. So essentially what we've done is we've looked at every single feature of the notebooks and we've ensured that each of those features is as sustainable as possible. So I've used um, a really premium, sustainable, post-consumer recycled paper. We've used vegetable inks in the production. The production process of the paper is carbon neutral. And then when we come to binding and printing those notebooks, we're also using green electricity. And even the glazing that protects the notebooks and provides them with water resistance is actually a biodegradable substance rather than a non-biodegradable plastic. So we've really gone across the entire supply chain and thought about the way that we can improve the outcomes um, for the environment of this common consumer product. And I guess the real beauty of that is that at both ends of this supply chain, we're achieving social impact by donating our profits towards educational programs. And the social enterprise we're collaborating with does the same. So essentially what we've created is this beautiful, uh, comprehensive system of social impact um, where you've got educational benefit at both ends of the supply chain and then sustainability throughout. And we think this is really a market first and we're so excited to bring this to market and give people the opportunity to, I guess, not only have a tool to, to keep people creative, but also do a lot of good through a really common consumer product. Absolutely. I'll certainly stick a link through to the crowdfunding campaign once it's live in our article. And I'm really happy to hear that you've teamed up with Lauren Shuttlework as well, who we spoke to a year or so ago. So that's that's a really exciting initiative, Matt. So well done on, on doing that. So I know you're, a, you're an avid book lover. So to finish things off, what books then would you recommend to our listeners? So I guess it's a really dangerous question uh, for <laughs> someone whose social enterprise is actually founded on a passion for reading <laughs> right. ideas. But given that we're short on time, perhaps I can recommend a few books that will appeal to and, and really challenge your audience. The first book I'd recommend is Operating Manual for Spaceship Earth by R. Buckminster Fuller. Mm. Bucky, as he's affectionately known, uh, was one of the most brilliant thinkers of the 21st or the 20th century, I should say. And this book is really a great introduction to his intellectual spirit, um, his philosophy and worldview, and some of his bold and brilliant ideas. And that book really poses the question of how do we make the world work for 100% of humanity uh, in the shortest possible time through spontaneous cooperation um, and without ecological damage or disadvantage to anyone? And that's really a powerful question to pose and really gets us to focus on a really comprehensive and refreshing way of thinking about solving the world's problems. Mm. And that's, that's a book that's, that's really influenced me, uh, as is other work. A, a second book, I guess, is uh, Winners Take All, The Elite Charade of Changing the World, and that's by Anon Girard Haradas. Um, he's a, an author and former columnist at the New York Times, and I guess as that provocative title suggests, he offers a really strident critique of the change-making elite and American philanthropy and a really fresh perspective on solving complex societal problems. So whether you agree with none, some, or all of his thesis, um, I think that that book is actually really essential reading for anyone interested in changing the world, especially those who come from an affluent country like Australia yeah. um, and also people in particular that occupy a really privileged position in society. 
And I guess the last book, um, which I'm actually working my way through now, is The Value of Everything. Um, the subtitle of the book is Making and Taking in the Global Economy. And that's written by Mariana Mazzucato, an Italian-American economist, and she's the Professor of Economics of Innovation and Public Purpose at UCL in the UK. And in this book, um, Mazzucato returns to the really age-old question of economics of the measurement of value and argues that economic forces affecting our daily lives are neither an ecosystem that simply requires us to get out of the way and let the markets work, nor something so complex and unknowable that we can't steer it um, to serve the public interest again. And I, I find so far that her lesson for readers is really urgent and sobering, and that's to really transform our economy and avoid inevitable crises, uh, such as the global financial crisis, and really foster inclusive and sustainable economic growth, we really need to rethink the foundations of capitalism, rethink the role of public policy and the importance of the public sector, and also redefine how we actually measure value in our society. And I guess that goes back to a lot of the work I've been doing over the last year in terms of social procurement, which is really addressing achieving greater value through our spending decisions. Fantastic. Well, they sound like some excellent books there, Matthew. So thanks for sharing those. And thanks for sharing your generous insights today as well. There's been some really great insights there, particularly on social procurement. So that's fantastic. And we'll look forward to following your crowdfunding journey and, and speaking with you again in the future. Thanks very much. It's our pleasure. Thanks for listening to Impact Boom. You'll find links to the initiatives, people and resources mentioned in this podcast on impactboom.org. Please leave your comments below and remember, we'll be publishing fresh inspiration and insights to help you create positive impact every week on the website, Facebook page and Twitter.